Chapter 11 Van Dyck. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of Art for Young People by Agnes Ethel Conway and Sir Martin Conway. The painting discussed in this chapter is William II of Orange by Van Dyck. Chapter 9 Van Dyck. The great painter Rubens lived at Antwerp, a town about as near to Amsterdam as Dover is to London. Yet despite the proximity of Flanders and Holland, their religion, politics, social life, and art were very different in the seventeenth century, as we have already seen. Rubens was a painter of the prosperous and ruling classes. He was employed by his own sovereign, by the King of Spain, by Marie de Medici, Queen of France, and by Charles I of England. His remarkable social and intellectual gifts caused him to be employed also as an ambassador, and he was sent on a diplomatic errand to Spain, but even then his leisure hours were occupied in copying the fine Titians in the king's palace. One day he was noticed by a Spanish noble, who said to him, "'Does my lord occupy his spare time in painting?' "'No,' said Rubens. "'The painter sometimes amuses himself with diplomacy.' In his life, as in his art, he was exuberant. An absurd anecdote of the time is good enough to show that. Some people who went to visit him in his studio at Antwerp wrote afterwards that they found him hard at work at a picture, whilst at the same time he was dictating a letter, and someone else was reading aloud a Latin work. When the visitors arrived, he answered all their questions without leaving off any of those three occupations. We must not all hope to match Rubens. Rubens's great ceremonial paintings, containing numerous figures and commemorating historical scenes in honour of his royal patrons, were executed by his own hands, or by the hands he taught and guided, with great skill and speed. He painted also beautiful portraits of his wife and family, and pictures of his own medieval castle, which he restored and inhabited during the last years of his life, with views of the country stretching out in all directions. He liked a comfortable life and comfortable-looking people. He painted his own wives as often as Rembrandt painted Saskia. Both were plump enough to make our memories recur with pleasure to the slenderer figures preferred by Botticelli and the painters of his school. To accomplish the great mass of historic, symbolic, and ceremonial painting that still crowds the walls of the galleries of Europe, Rubens needed many assistants and pupils, but only one of them, Van Dyck, rose to the highest rank as a painter. He was a Fleming by birth, and worked in the studio at Antwerp for several years as an assistant of Rubens. Then he went to Italy to learn from the great pictures of the Italian Renaissance, as so many northern artists wished to do. It has been said that the works of Titian influenced his youthful mind the most. Van Dyck spent three years in Genoa, where he was employed by those foremost in its life to paint their portraits. Many of these superb canvases have been dispersed to enrich the galleries of both hemispheres, public and private, but the proud, handsome semblances of some of his sitters, dressed in rich velvet, pearls, and lace, look down upon us still from the bare walls of their once magnificent palaces, with that 
grand air for which the eye and the brush of Van Dyck have long remained unrivalled. When he returned to Flanders from Italy, he had attained a style of painting entirely his own, and very different from that of his great master Rubens. The William II of Orange picture is an excellent example of Van Dyck's work. The child is a prince. We know it as plainly as if Van Dyck had spoken the word before unveiling his canvas. His erect attitude, his dignified bearing, his perfect self-possession and ease, show that he has been trained in a high school of manners. But there is also something in the delicate oval of the face, the well-cut nose and mouth, and the graceful growth of the hair that speak of refined breeding. Distinction is the keynote of the picture. This little prince had in his veins the blood of William the Silent, and became the father of our William the Third. Poor human nature is too easily envious, and some deny the reality, in fact, of the distinction, the grace of Van Dyck's portrayed men and women. Nevertheless, Van Dyck's vision, guiding his brush, was as rare an endowment as envy is a common one, and has higher authority to show us what to look for, to see, and to enjoy. Van Dyck was the first painter who taught people how they ought to look, to befit an admirer's view of their aristocratic rank. His portraits thus express the social position of the sitter, as well as the individual character. Although this has been an aim of portrait painters in modern times, when they have been painting people of rank, it was less usual in the seventeenth century. There was hardly scope enough in Antwerp for two great painters, such as Rubens and Van Dyck, so in 1632 Van Dyck left Flanders, and settled permanently in England, as court painter to Charles I. All his life Charles had been an enthusiastic collector of works of art. Born with a fine natural taste, he had improved it by study, until Rubens could say of him, "'The Prince of Wales is the best amateur of painting of all the princes in the world. He has demanded my portrait with such insistence that he has overcome my modesty, although it does not seem to me fitting to send it to a prince of his importance.'" Two of our pictures, the Richard II Diptych and the Edward VI of Holbein, were in his collection, besides many we have mentioned, such as Holbein's Erasmus, Raphael's Cartoons, and Mantegna's Triumph of Caesar. Before Charles came to the throne he had gone to Spain to woo the daughter of Philip III. The magnificent Titians in the palace at Madrid exhorted such admiration from the prince, that Philip felt it incumbent upon him as a host and a Spaniard to offer some of them to Charles. Charles sent his own painter to copy the rest. He kept agents all over Europe to buy for him, and spent thousands of pounds in salaries and presents to the artists at his court. As in the time of Henry VIII, there were still no first-rate English painters. James I had employed a Fleming, and an inferior Dutchman, whom Charles retained in his service for a time. Then he experimented with a second-rate Italian artist, who painted some ceilings which still exist at Hampton Court. Rubens was too much in demand at other courts for Charles to have his exclusive service, but the courtly Van Dyck was a painter after his own heart. For the first time he had found an artist who satisfied his taste, and Van Dyck a court in which he could paint distinction to his heart's content. 
Charles would have squandered money on him if he had then had it to squander. As it was, he paid him far less than he had paid his inferior predecessors, but Van Dyck continued to paint for him to the end, and by heaven's mercy died himself before the crash came, which overthrew Charles and scattered his collection. Between the years of 1632 and 1642, Van Dyck painted a great number of portraits of the king. It is from these that we obtain our vivid idea of the first Charles's gentleness and refinement. He has a sad look, as though the world were too much for him, and he had fallen upon evil days. We can see him year by year looking sadder, but Van Dyck makes the sadness only emphasize the distinction. Queen Henrietta Maria was painted even more often than the king. She is always dressed in some bright, shimmering satin, sometimes in yellow, like the sleeve of William II's dress, sometimes in the purest white. She looks very lovely in the pictures, but lovelier still are the groups of her children. Even James II was once a bewitching little creature in frocks, with a skull-cap on his head. His sister Mary, aged six, in a lace dress, with her hands folded in front of her, looks very good and grown up. When she became older, though not even then really grown up, she married the William of Orange of our picture. He came from Holland, and stayed at the English court as a boy of twelve, and it was then that Van Dyck painted this portrait of him. Later on, when they were married, Van Dyck painted them together, but William was older, and looked a little less beautiful, and Mary had lost the charm of her babyhood. With all her royal dignity and solemnity, she is a perfect child in these pictures. Refined people, loving art, have grown so fond of the Van Dyck children, that often when they wish their own to look particularly bewitching at some festivity, they dress them in the costumes of the little Mary and Elizabeth Stuart, and revive the skull-caps and the lace dresses for a fresh enjoyment. Van Dyck's patrons in England, other than the king, were mostly noblemen and courtiers. They lived in the great houses which had been built in many parts of the country during the reigns of Elizabeth and her successors. The rooms were spacious, with high walls that could well hold the large canvases of Van Dyck. Sometimes a special gallery was built to contain the family portraits, and Van Dyck received a commission to paint them all. Often several copies of the same picture were ordered at one time, to be sent as presents to friends and relations. Usually the artist painted but one himself. The rest were copies by his assistants. Van Dyck's portraits were designed to suit great houses. In a small room, which a portrait by Holbein would have decorated nobly, a canvas by Van Dyck would have been overpowering. In spite of the fact that the expressions on the faces are often intimate and appealing, Domesticity is not the mark of his art. In Van Dyck's picture of our heir of fame, the white linen, the yellow satin, and the armour please us as befitting the lovely face. There is a glimmer of light on the armour, but you see how different is Van Dyck's treatment of it from Rembrandt's. Van Dyck painted it as an article of dress in due subordination to the face, not as an opportunity for reflecting light and becoming the most important thing in the picture. We have seen how Rembrandt, Peter de Hoek, Cuyp, Rubens, and Van Dyck were all contemporaries, 
born within an area of ground smaller far than England. Yet the range of their subjects were widely different, and each painter gave his individuality full play. The desires of the public were not stereotyped and fixed, as they had been when all alike wanted their religious aspirations expressed in art. The patrons of that epoch had various likings, as we have to-day, and the painter developed along the lines most congenial to himself. Unless he could make people like what he enjoyed painting, he could not make a living. If they had no eyes to learn to see, he might remain unappreciated, like Rembrandt, until long after his death. Yet Van Dyck's portraits were popular. People could scarcely help enjoying an art that showed them off to such advantage. Having found a style that suited him, he adhered to it consistently, thenceforward making but few experiments. This little picture before us is an admirable example of the gentle, poetic grace and refinement always recalled to the memory by the name of Van Dyck. So long as men prized the aspect of distinction, which he was the first northern painter to express in paint, Van Dyck's reputation will endure. End of chapter 11 Read by Kara Schallenberg on July 24, 2008 in San Diego, California